So this evening, I would like to look a little at this idea uh, of grasping and creative engagement. And of course, you can use different words uh, to talk about this, but it seems to me grasping uh, is really looking at the process. Because I think if we use other words like uh, clinging or craving, I think they're generally quite loaded. And I think when we want to look at is how can meditation help us in a way to have more wisdom, to have more compassion, to have more peace and clarity. And so personally, I think the way it works is I would see meditation as a de-grasping method. So it's not that we are adding something, but is that something is dissolved over time. And I think in different ways, through the anchoring and through the looking deeply. But also in terms of the two points we have uh, talked quite a bit about, about contact and about feeling towards. Because it's as this point of contact and feeling torn that we have, in a way, over time, the choice. Do we grasp or do we creatively engage? So if we have more space and more stability, then it's more possible to creatively engage. If we have difficult condition, then we go back to the pattern, to automatic grasping. So I think to see also that when we talk of de-grasping, we're not talking about 0% grasping. Because actually, it's an, again, evolutionary mechanism. We grasp in order to survive. If I don't grasp, nobody is going to grasp for me in order for this organism to continue. So in a way, we need to have a bit of sustaining of, in a way, taking care of ourselves. But then could we, in a way, reduce the grasping to 50%? Because, I mean, if we go from 95 to 50, then there's much more space for others. Because if you're grasping 95%, there is not much space. We can very, in a way, inward-looking and very concerned about ourselves. When if we diminish to 50, then, oh, I can see others, and I can see others for themselves and not from myself. I think to me, this is a big point about this de-grasping and being with the other, being with the environment. It's not just about seeing the other, it's also seeing the other for themselves instead of through either my self-centeredness and my self-interest or my story about them. But first, let's look at the process of grasping versus creative engagement. And why I use the term creative engagement is because one, often one can have the feeling that grasping not grasping would be about nothing. So not grasping is 
not doing anything. So it would seem like a very passive thing. When actually, personally, I think what happened is that through the dissolving of the grasping, then you have a creative space in which your creative potential can really develop and manifest. So we're not left with nothing. Actually, we left with a really kind of creative possibility. So let's look at the process of grasping. And so grasping, let's, the best is for me to do my little party trick. And then it's easier. Some of you have seen it, some not. So let's say this is precious to me. And because it's precious to me, so either it's, I don't know, gold, diamond, or it's the greatest truth in the universe, but because it's precious to me, then I grasp at it. And so if I grasp at it like this, two things are going to happen. The first one, I am going to get a cramp in the arm. <laughs> and this is a little uh, kind of a symptom, a signal of grasping is generally tensing, tightening. Then there is something which must be more problematic, is the fact that actually, if I do this, I cannot use my hand for anything else. So I'm actually stuck to what I'm grasping at. So what's the solution? I mean, the first solution, you can cut the hand. But that's a little drastic. This is a little bit the ascetic path, in a way. So we don't go for that. We are meditation in daily life. Next, you could get rid of the object. So I mean, it's an object which can, mm, you want me, don't you? I mean, we do have this funny impression. If you go in a shopping center, if you kind of, you know, mm, it's kind of like the thing is glowing and it's calling out to you, you really want me. I mean, the advertise, I mean, this is the thing. The advertising industry totally understand this. I mean, they're fantastic for that. Uh, I do the shopping for my mother, so I was buying some um, frozen food. And I mean, on the packet, it looked fantastic. Like, ooh, I thought that looks good. Little vegetable pie, very nice. So I put them, and then one day we open it, and it was like, ooh, you know, I mean, they really got me there. <laughs> so, but the object is not calling out to you. I mean, the object, of course, is made up of condition which might attract or not you, but they're not saying, come, come, come. Not at all. So you could get rid of the object, but that might not dissolve the grasping. So then, personally, I think what the meditation, what we've been doing here, is actually slowly, slowly, slowly helping us to open our hand so that then you can move the object, you can use it, and so there is freedom, there is flexibility, there is movement. So in a way, if we look, what are the characteristics of the process of grasping is that generally as you grasp, 
you identify. So the two really go together. I, me, mine. So we can generally, we grasp there is a selfing involved. And then by grasping and identifying around it, we limit ourselves to it. And then by limiting ourselves to it, we magnify what we're grasping at. And to me, this is what is the most problematic about grasping, actually, is this amplifying effect it has. It has actually two, I would say it has two sidelines. One sideline is what I would call proliferation, abstraction. So something happens, and then you move from that experiential, conditional moment to it's always like this, and this will happen, and that will happen, and then generally you go into abstraction. And then it's very hard to do anything about it, because it, it, your creative potential cannot access something which is abstract, which is imagined. I had a friend for 20 years, he was so worried if something happened, he would be finished. His life would be finished. He would be a wreck. And then I met him, and he looked strange. So I said, what happened? He said, well, you know, the thing I feared for 20 years, it happened. And I'm fine. And he was so shocked, he was fine. And he had been worried for so long in abstraction. But when the thing itself happened, he could cope with it. He could creatively engage with it. And so I think this is, in a way, the difficulty with uh, this kind of like proliferation element, this abstracting element. I mean, you can do it both ways, negatively and positively. I mean, I, I had a friend who was in a, a relationship and he was happy in his relationship, and then he saw ooh, somebody who was mm, attractive. Mm. So he had kind of a little, kind of, he was tempted. He was tempted. And then we talked about it, and he was saying just the kind of like that grasping, he was already kind of, you know, fantasizing about whole life. I mean, like, you know, 20 years down the line with this person he had met for 10 minutes. So it was kind of like from the experience to a whole imagined reality, which then kind of become more and more seductive. And so I was a little worried about it. We kind of talk about, you know, more the amplification than what would happen. And then later he was still with the regular boyfriend. So I was happy with that, I must say. It seemed more real than the kind of the imagined thing made up. And so in a way, to, to notice one of the things we can notice with the mindfulness is that is this real? Like, am I thinking about something which is really here? Or am I starting to abstract, to kind of go into this abstraction, which has little to do with what is going on here? And then there is, I have mentioned it already several times, but that's, again, is, all, is kind of painful, is exaggeration. If you grasp, generally you will exaggerate. 
And so in a way, and then you start to hear, it's always like this. You will never change. And that's so absolute. To me, this is kind of like, in a way, what is a gift of impermanence? The gift of impermanence is that at some point, there is a potential for change. You might not change now, but at some point, there could be change. But imagine if you say to yourself or you say to somebody else, you will never change. Many, many years ago, I learned to drive a bit late in life. And in those days, you could still do that. Nowadays, you can't. Uh, I used to lock the key in the car. And then I would call my husband, you know, can you come with the other set? So I did it one time. I did it twice. And then the third time he said, you always lock the keys in the car. And I had this vision of me kind of doing it day in, day out. And I thought <laughs> our marriage would kind of, you know, have trouble with that. But then I turned from that to creative engagement. And that was, okay, I don't do this all the time. When do I do it? What are the conditions in which this happened? And then I started to bring mindfulness. And then I noticed that I did it when I parked in a tight place. So after that, when I would park in a tight place, I would go for the key. <laughs> and then it never happened again. And then it happened to my husband. <laughs> so to see the grasping, proliferation, abstraction, exaggeration, which again, it's very hard for the creative potential to do anything with always. And so creative engagement is really what is going on now? What is the experience now? How can I try to creatively engage with what is happening, if I can? And then what I wanted to look at, because we're lo really looking at uh, meditation and daily life, looking a little bit at the different things we can grasp at or creatively engage with. And so, of course, we can grasp at anything. But let's look at a few things which you could say matter. So the first one is a grasping itself. So of course you might have heard about Buddhism and in Buddhism you might have heard that they talk about not-self. Anatta, not-self. And so generally from that, you might take that the aim of this retreat is it by the end of it, you disappear in a puff of smoke. <laughs> Just a little smoke. Or because it evolved over time into emptiness that you, know, you sit here and you're waiting to find this kind of magical emptiness. Which, and actually that's not what it is. Not self is just saying we cannot reduce ourselves to anything. We just it's just saying we are a composite. So you could say in a way 
We are a flow of condition. This organism is a flow of condition. Inner condition meeting outer condition and there is a little change in both and a little continuity in both. So, okay, you don't kind of uh, think there is like a kind of solid fixed self. So you're not going to grasp at that. And you understand there is this fluid, operative, functional self. But it is constituted of conditions. And then what happens is that then we're going to grasp at one of the conditions that forms us. So in a way, we have, to me, this is in a way the beauty of the teaching of conditionality, is that it's kind of an exploration of all the condition that forms us in different ways. And that I think we will explore all our life, the different conditions. And so, in a way, the, the exploration of the mindfulness of the meditation is to see more and more the condition that forms us. But then what often happens is that we grasp at one of the conditions that forms us and we say, this is me. So basically from having all this inner, outer condition meeting together, multi-perspectival, different things going on, I just become one thing. And in that way, I can become just one thought. And then I just see that thought and nothing else. Or for example, one of our condition is our physicality. We have a body which has a certain shape. We have a body who can become ill. And so are we going to reduce ourselves to our physicality? to our shape, or to our illness. I mean, I have learned over time that I am a small person, and that sometime I need to ask somebody, sometime in the supermarket, I kind of like, you know, I'm a little too small to catch something, so I look for kind of taller people, which uh, generally people are taller than me. But I did not know I was small, because I am the tallest of the women in my family. So for me, I'm kind of tall for my family, but we are kind of small, so compared to everybody else. So it was very interesting for me to start to realize coming out of my family, being independent, to realize, oh, I'm not tall, I'm small. You know, it was interesting. You know, how that kind of shifting of kind of selfing of the conditions. Or if we are ill, to are we just, of course our illness will really impact us. But if we reduce all of ourselves to that, that's to me what is, it's so painful to reduce ourselves to just one element. And there was this book by this lady a few years back, what never, not totally interested in meditation or mindfulness or anything, but then she had a diagnosis of cancer. And she thought, oh, 
if I grasp at it, if I identify with it, then it's going to be two years because it was something which was curable. It was two years where I'm really going to be in a bad shape. So she looked around and then she found that mindfulness could help with that. And she said it made such a difference that she still had the illness, it was still difficult, but she was not defined by it. She did not characterize herself, reduce herself to it. Or we can grasp at an emotion. In a way, you can decide. I am a sad person. I am an angry person. I mean, you might have a tendency to be angry or to be sad. Or you might have conditions which are likely to make you angry or sad. But one is not just that. So it's in a way, how can I creatively engage with my physicality? How can I creatively engage with, with my emotion? Because they are part of who I am. But how can I experience them? And the thing is that, in a way, emotions are conditional in different ways, but they can also be, in a way, a little bit physiological. If you have lots of energy, it's more likely that you will maybe be a little the angry type. If you have low energy, possibly you could be more tendency to be sad. But how can I creatively engage with that? And then there, the creative engagement is when is it I don't feel like that? And so in a way, instead of looking the moment where you have it, because this is a thing, often in the mindfulness circle, possibly less, but in a spiritual circle or Buddhist circle, you're not supposed to be angry. You're supposed to be calm, very calm. So then you're not angry, but then you become resentful. <laughs> you know, so then you have to be careful, like, you know, the person does something which is unpleasant or hurtful, and you say, no, 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 I understand, they have condition, it's all right. I let it pass, second time, yes, may you be happy, loving kindness, it's okay. Third time, you shout. And they say, but you, you did not the first two times, you know? So we have to be very careful of that. Creative engagement would be, what is it that is happening here? How am I hurt? How could I explore this with that person? Or is it that I cannot explore it with that person? So in a way, creative engagement is kind of, instead of saying, no, it's not there, I must not address it, it's kind of, do I need to address it? And if I need to address it, how can I address it in a way which will be constructive, where I can hear the other person and the other person can hear me? So and another thing we can grasp at is qualities. This is interesting qualities. I am a good person or I am a bad person. The impression that there is kind of a quality which will kind of like define me or somebody else. 
And for me, an, a very excellent case of this is in a way Gandhi. Gandhi is somebody I, uh, from an early age, I was very inspired by his uh, writing. But in my later years, I was a little sobered because although he kind of, he was an amazing person, he had a whole side to him which was really weird. He was really terrible as a father and then there was also kind of other weird stuff. So you could say he was a good person some of the time and he was a strange person and harmful person other part of the time. So to see that the quality is not fixed, is not because a person is in general a good person, that they always will be good, because often that's what we do with the generalizing principle. So then with that, what happened is that if you have a good friend and you consider them a good person, and then somebody comes to you and said, you know this person, he did this bad thing. You said, no, 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 no. They're a good person. They cannot do a bad thing. And then if there is somebody you think is really not a nice person and he's a bad person, and then somebody comes and says, oh, no, 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 but they did this good thing. No, 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 they can't do this good thing. It's interesting how we have a tendency to fix ourselves, to fix others. When a lot of the time, the goodness comes a lot from the condition. I mean, inner condition, but also with the outer condition. You might have noticed it's very easy to be a really nice, peaceful meditator. If everything goes according to plan, it's very easy to be a fantastic mindfulness person if you kind of everything goes fine in your life. And possibly not so if uh, things are not going so well. Uh, last uh, year I had this funny experience because I was very busy at home. I'm taking care of my mother and many other things. So I had planned to go to town. I could not go to town for weeks. And finally one morning I could go to town, but the, the timing was really reduced. So first I had to go to the apple shop and then I had to do this and that. So, I mean, in the apple shop, I was a demon. <laughs> and when I came out of it, I thought, if they knew I was a meditation teacher, they would never <laughs> believe it. Then when I came out and I saw that, I said, wait a minute. <sighs> calm down, calm down. And so then we shifted. I shifted from grasping to we can do this in a calm way. And then I was much nicer to everybody else. So in a way, it's kind of to see the condition are going to act upon the qualities. So that's for the self. I mean, uh, maybe uh, two, two final things about the self. The first one, which is interesting, of the grasping and the self, is when we go into self-pity. This is interesting. We might have a very difficult feeling towards something really unpleasant has happened, but it is circumstantial, it is conditional. But if we grasp at it, then we can go into a really dark place, really painful place. So let, let's just give me a little 
quick example. Waiting. Often we're not so good at waiting. So waiting, nine o'clock, person is not here. Ten past nine, he does not love me. Nine twenty, nobody loves me. <laughs> nine thirty, I hate the world. <laughs> and that's grasping. Or you can have creative engagement. Nine o'clock, the person is not there. Okay. Nowadays, you can phone them and ask, what happened? And once this happened to me, and she said, oh, I thought it was next week. I thought, okay, great, I'll do something else. So in a way, it's to kind of, do we creatively engage with those conditions, or do we extrapolate and then make it more difficult? Then there is another aspect of that self, selfing, is that sometimes, for whatever reason, we don't like ourselves. So then we might have a languaging which is relatively negative about ourselves. But then, in a way, you're stuck. Because, I mean, you are with yourself all the time. So if you don't like yourself, like, this is a difficult situation. But if you loved yourself, and love has this quality of warmth, of lightness, I love snow. When I see snow, wow, I feel warm and light. So if you loved yourself, then you could feel warm all the time and light all the time. So that's an interesting thing to look at. Which brings me to the next one. The next one we can grasp at is people, friends, family, partners. And then it's interesting because in, uh, often in meditation, in Buddhism, in spiritual path, and you often hear about non-attachment which personally I don't like to use because it's too loaded, or even worse, detachment. It makes me think of the semi-detached house in England, you know. But here, to me, what is interesting is that love is a wonderful quality. That's what the Buddha said, loving kindness. Cultivate loving kindness. It brings warmth, lightness, connection. So this is a very important quality. And then to look at in which way do I grasp at a person and in which way my love is what I would call creative, wise love. So then what is interesting is to notice, am I grasping at the person? So then it means you want to be next to that person all the time. That's what I did to my husband at the beginning of our marriage. I used to stick to him all the time until I realized this is not a good idea. <laughs> Creative engagement. Because if you, if you grasp at a person, you're so focused on that person that then you don't have other relationship. And so if you love someone, to me it's like parallel line. There is what you grow together and what each independently grow outside of this line. And so that as a person, you can develop in terms of relationship. Or do you grasp 
at the feeling the person produces in you? And what if, because of certain condition, suddenly that person doesn't produce that feeling? What does it mean? Does it mean that you don't love them anymore? I mean, look at children. Some of you might have children. I mean, I have no children, but I have lots of uh, nieces and nephews. And children, I find it amazing when suddenly they say to their parents, I hate you. And the mother, oh, you know. But the next minute you give them the ice cream and they love you, you know. But it's sad. Like suddenly, oh, you feel so guilty, you know, like, but it's just conditional, very conditional on getting the ice cream or not, or whatever it is they want to do. So in a way, am I grasping at the feeling? That to me is a very interesting word. And if it's not there, what does that mean? If you're really tired, if you have difficulty or whatever, it's very interesting how if we equate love with the feeling we experience within ourselves, it's become very conditional, that love. Because I think love is more than that. Love is caring, cherishing, sharing, even depending on each other, influencing each other. So in a way, if you equate love with just a feeling, well, what if it's not there? But can that feeling be a kind of a more rounded experience of sharing or growing together, of caring with each other. And so in a way, looking at that, when we love someone, how do we love that person? Then another thing we can uh, grasp at is things. And things, again, is back to they look a little kind of uh, glossy and often we think, you know, if I get the house, if I get the job, I mean, as a writer, if you get the book, you know, yeah, this is my book, and you think, wow, you know, if I have a book published, it's going to make such difference to my life. I had this experience with my first book. I was waiting for it every morning. Then finally the parcel came at breakfast and I was eating my toast and ah! So I opened it, I look at the cover, I look at the back cover and it lasted two minutes. And then I still had to do my job, I still had to. So in a way, yes, it's good to accomplish something. And also as human beings, we have needs. This is interesting, what is it we want and what is it we need? And the Buddha was very clear, even his monks and nuns had needs. They needed shelter, they needed medicine, they needed food, they needed clothes. And there is this beautiful passage, Sutta. And in the Sutta, the Buddha is saying, what is it, in which way can one be a disciple of the Buddha? With fully practice, fully develop. I mean, you really expect something amazing, you know, like a number five awakening or something. The, the, the beginning is very elaborate like that. And then he gives you four things. 
which would be the proof that really you are a great disciple of the Buddha. First thing, being contented with your food. And then you have all little kind of little, like, you know, that you, do, you don't like that or you don't like that or you pick with that. So he said the monks were kind of all picky with the food, actually. And he was ever saying, and he was saying, be contented with your food. Then, be contented with your clothes. And then he has lots of little kind of things about, you know, not wanting a certain color or not wanting this or not wanting that. Again, they seem a little picky with the clothes. And then, yes, be contented with your lodging. And then in it, he talks about windows and doors that, you know, they seem to want to have more windows than the other guys or something. It was, and you think, wait a minute. And then, of course, the fourth one is to do meditation. So in a way, this is all we need, to be contented with our food, with our clothes, and with our lodging. So it's back to the appreciation that um, Chris was talking about the other day. And there is this beautiful story about Achancha. So in Thailand, there is this, they are renunciate, all these monks, and generally, because they are not renunciate, people give them lots of uh, fancy things, you could say. So if you go to the room of a great monk, you generally see lots of kind of uh, either on the wall, you have the watches, or you have golf things, or you have kind of really weird stuff, kind of expenses, weird stuff. But in this case, on the table of a great monk, Achan Chan, there was this beautiful vase. And then come this young American, he said, but you are a renunciate, you should not have this beautiful vase. And then the master says, I can, I can enjoy the vase, but for me, it is already broken. And that's creative engagement. So not grasping doesn't mean that we kind of go on top of a mountain and we don't use anything. But it's kind of knowing, yes, I can use this, but I know it can become obsolete. I know it can be broken. I know I can lose it. I know it can disappear. So I can still appreciate it, knowing at some point it's going to change. Then there is another thing we can grasp at, and that, personally, I think is a little strange. And this is work. You say a word, what is it? It's just a little sonorous wave. That's it. I mean, even if you have the longest word in the English language, it's a little sonorous wave. It arrives, very short generally, and then it goes. So in a way, it's really not, I mean, not existing. It exists very quickly, and then it goes. So, I mean, this is a great opportunity not to grasp at something that doesn't exist. But what do we do? I mean, I could make my little experiment. So I look at you very nicely. I smile and I say, you are all awakened. Oh, she said, we are awakened. Woo, this is nice. But what if I look at you a little dourly? 
well, well, well. You are all stupid. <gasps> Sam stupid. She's stupid to say I'm stupid. What if I am stupid? You know, and two years down the line, you're sitting in meditation. <gasps> Martin said I was stupid. <laughs> but how often do we do this? That actually, it's gone. But we still think about that person said this. This is amazing how we suffer with that. And then, create, what is creative engagement? Because you'll tell me, yes, I mean, not all words are equal. I would agree. Some words are harmless, and some words are harmful, of course. But when somebody said something to you, creative engagement is to ask, is it about me? Or is it about them? Because it might not be about you at all. And to do with them. So do you want to buy something which is not yours? I often look at kind of like when people speak to us, a bit like us, going to the veggie shop. I go to the market every Wednesday morning and I go and buy my fruit and vegetables. And I know I'm supposed to be an equanimous Buddhist teacher, but I generally choose the best apples and the best carrots and with no little kind of, you know, something on them. The other day I noticed, ah, I did not see that one. It was a little bit rotten. So to me it's the same. When I go to the veggie shop, I don't take everything. I kind of, you know, pick and choose. Same with the word you hear. Do you have to buy everything somebody says to you? Maybe not. It's about them. It's not about you. And if it's about you that you really did something, then the question is, can you do something about it or not? Many, many years ago, this was long, long ago, I was teaching uh, somewhere. And then I could see one guy was like really looking trouble, really looking trouble. So finally I asked him, what's the matter? He said, I, I cannot stand your voice. I really cannot stand your voice. <laughs> so I said, you don't have to come to the talks. You really don't have to come to the talks. You know, I mean, that I cannot change. You know, that I couldn't do anything about. But when uh, kind of, you know, somebody... Uh, at the beginning I was teaching, came to me and said, you use the word arguing. I would argue the point. As a Buddhist, you should not argue. This is not peaceful. I thought, fair enough. So now I don't argue, I suggest. <laughs> that I could change. You know? Or if somebody accuses you of doing something, I mean, once I was doing a kind of like a committee meeting, kind of meeting, community meeting, and then somebody accused me, you know, you organize us all the time. I'm fed up. Stop organizing us. And it was not pleasant. But then I reflected and I thought, yeah, he's a bit right. I like to organize. So it was a good lesson because after that I found a way to do it less. And it was really much more peaceful. 
actually to do less of that and let some people do it. <coughs> then one last grasping. I mean, there are many more, but we'll finish with this one. And this one again, it's an interesting one because it's a very, what I would call amorphous one. Basically, it's a little electricity or chemical in the brain. And this, grasping at views, grasping at ideas. What are ideas? What are uh, thought views? Basically, a little electricity or chemical in the brain. The neuron coming together, and then you have this little idea. It's a little more constructed than that. But. And what do we do with our view? This is interesting. Because it's my view, and it's mine because it's in my head, it's a good one. Because it's a good one, it's a right one. Because it's a right one, it's right all the time. And thus, everybody must believe it. This is what is interesting with grasping at view, is that you start with a view, and then you hand up to this, everybody must believe this. It becomes like, this is good, this is right, this is the only one, everybody must believe this. So in a way, the view itself is not problematic, it's an idea. Why not? It could be a good idea. But if we grasp at it, if we identify with it, then it becomes very problematic. Because then if the other person questions your view, they're not just questioning a little electricity in the brain. They're questioning me. They're questioning the whole organism. And they're saying to the organism, yet, 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 no. But they're not doing that. They're just questioning the view. So this is, I think, very important, that one. When we have a discussion, do we have a discussion which becomes an argument, or do we have a discussion which becomes a dialogue? And so if you have a discussion which becomes an argument, where you're basically saying, my view is the right one, Yours is a wrong one, and then you have to defend it because you are defending your very existence. When, if you have an exchange and a dialogue, you bring, in a way, a suggestion, a proposition, a possibility, the other person too. And out of these two possibilities, often, you can have a third one, which is even better. And then you can have what I would call a fruitful dialogue. And that is very interesting when we're discussing with someone. Are we going in a way the grasping route or are we going the dialogue route? And I think it's back to, it doesn't mean that we need to creatively engage all the time because it depends on condition if we can do it or not. But to notice, how does it feel when I grasp, how does it feel when I creatively engage? To me, that, this is about that. Because, of course, we will be grasping at this, that, and another. But can we notice it? Can we notice 
the tension? Can we notice the exaggeration? Can we, in a way, have this play of, oh, I am grasping here. Can I release a little bit? What would it mean in terms of creative engagement? And I think then it becomes easier in daily life to see, oh, I grasped. Fair enough. How could I have creatively engaged? How could I come to the situation in a different way? Many years ago, I had, uh, there was a, some, often some meeting of some uh, Buddhist teacher, and one of them was a good friend of uh, my husband. And so every time we went there, I would meet this person. And every time, we would end up in an argument. So we did it once, we did it a second time, and I thought, third time, we, I'm going to do something different. And so that time I brought mindfulness to see what happened. Why do we end up in an argument? And so that time I really monitored it, just not going into kind of uh, grasping at the idea, but just to notice. And then I saw that we had kind of different personality, different kind of theology. And so when one would bring something, the other felt, mm, is he questioning me or whatever? And so I decided not to do that, to just listen to the person. Oh, yeah, why not? Yeah, we could. And the thing did not happen. And then after that, we could have much more fruitful dialogue. We could, in a way, listen to each other from a different place instead of from our theology, which might be different. So that's what I think is meant, that grasping is not bad per se. I mean, it can bring sometimes pain, but it's kind of to, how can I explore how it feels to grasp, and then to notice, oh, how, does it, how is it when I creatively engage? So to see that sometimes we can't help it, and sometimes we can help it, and sometimes it just happens naturally. Well, you certainly have these creative moments just by, in a way, being present, being stable, being balanced, and something happened, and it just come up, and ah, and you're kind of like, I found with it. So that's what I wanted to say. Are there any? Questions or comments? If there is no questions, comment, I'll just then finish with a story about grasping at tradition. Because you can also grasp at mindfulness, you can grasp at technique of meditation, you can grasp at culture. And so I lived in Korea for 10 years, and in Korea, you must wear socks at all times, even in the summer when it's 35 degrees. So it means you really kind of 
if you want to go, be a good uh, monk or nun, or if you hope to be awakened, then you really have to have socks. <laughs> then if you go to Japan, in the middle of winter, even though you must never wear socks, you must be always barefoot. Even if the feet on the wooden pallet is frozen, you no socks. And then I go to Taiwan, to a nunnery in Taiwan. And I notice that at times they seem to wear socks and at times they don't. And I think, oh, maybe they're beyond, you know, socklessness, you know, they kind of, <laughs> they reach like true awakening. So I decide not to wear socks. But then I go to the meditation hall after four without socks. And then when I come out of the meditation, the nun comes and say, this is very bad. You must, this is terrible to be barefoot after four o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> you, you must wear socks. And I said, why? Because you know, you have not washed your feet, this is terrible, you can only not wear socks after you wash your feet, etc., etc. So I, they had not reached socklessness. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.